Please turn in your Bibles once again with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. We will read and study verses 42 through 47. Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 42 through 47. If you've been with us for some time, you know that we've been studying the Gospel of Mark for over two years. You also will know that we've been in chapter 15 for quite some time. You'll recall that from last week, Christ was on the cross, crucified, suffering, groaning upon the tree, crying out in agony, and giving up His Spirit into the hands of his faithful father. And so we come once more to Mark chapter 15. We'll study verses 42 through 47. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, He granted the corpse to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Thus far the word of the Lord. Let's pray again together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures, for 66 books within which you display your love to your fallen children. Lord, we thank you for the truth of John 3.16, that you so love the world, even a fallen world, that you gave your holy, your perfect, your only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Lord, as we come again to your scriptures, to the funeral of the Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand heavenly things, that you would give us a consideration of Christ and His work and His obedience. O Lord, that You would give us true faith that we might cast ourselves down upon the One who died on our behalf. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. There was no more pain. There was no more groaning. No more torment. It has all been finished. 
And on the cursed peak of Golgotha, there was silence. And the lifeless body of Christ, pierced in hand and feet, was limp upon the cross. And here in these few verses, we are invited by the Gospel writer to attend the funeral of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a funeral attender, as a minister of the Gospel, and just a simple human being like every one of us in the room, we do some things at funerals. The first thing we do is we mourn. We mourn the loss of a loved one. We mourn the tragic death of a human being. It's a time where we deal with that, where we struggle. But it's also a time within which we are invited to consider our own lives. It's been said of funerals, and I think this is accurate, that funerals are more for the living than they are for the dead. After all, who's most impacted by a funeral? But those that are around the coffin rather than the one who is within it. And so as we study these verses of Scripture, it is my hope and prayer that we will consider the one who has died and that we'll also consider our own lives and our response to him. The three things I want us to see within the passage are these. Firstly, a secret believer. A secret believer in verses 42 and 43. Secondly, a bold disciple. Verses 43 through 46, a bold disciple. And then thirdly, I want us to hear the most important question and respond to it. The most important question. Good Friday is coming to a close and Mark's Gospel is the only one that gives us the detail that evening is falling upon the city of Jerusalem. Let me also remind you that this is not just any time over the course of the year, but rather this is the Passover week. The people of Israel are gathered in. They've had the feast. But here, Friday evening, approaching the fall of night, the beginning of another day, according to the Hebrew reckoning, we are on the eve of the Sabbath. And what we're told is that this is the day of preparation. You see, Mark wants to be clear. It's because I think he anticipates that not all of his readers will be converted Jewish people, but rather they'll be Gentiles. I think also he has the full expectation that there will be people like you and like me distanced in time, distanced according to land, expanse, and so many other things, culturally distant, that he is telling us that Friday is, according to the Hebrew week, the day of preparation. I don't want to make too much of this, but also not skip over a good opportunity to encourage us to holy practice. Every Hebrew person would have been on Friday preparing 
to completely rest from all their worldly vocations and avocations on the Lord's Day. On the Sabbath. Things would stop. It was a law, a legal thing, a thing that they were accounted either righteous for keeping or sinful for not keeping. They would prepare for it though. And I don't know if you're like me, but have you ever come around to Sunday and you find yourself unprepared? Have you ever done that? Things aren't in order. There's one thing here that needs to be taken care of. There's not a pot of soup or a meal ready to eat after the church service. Or maybe there were things that needed to be done to the car or to the house. And you find yourself thinking, well, I either go to church and don't get these things done and I honor the Lord's day or or I leave things undone that I should have already done. So I just want to confront this for just a second and encourage you as Christians to prepare for every Sunday and to say if you want freedom on Sunday to only consider heavenly things that it requires a little bit of preparation from you, from me so that we can simply lean back and rest in the promises and the goodness and the worship of God and consider Him only and be free from the things of this world as we anticipate the world that is coming. An encouragement. Make Saturday a day of preparation so that you can be free on the Lord's Day. That, however, is not the point of this passage. That's not at all the main thing in focus. We are being told that it's the day of preparation because it's contextual. It has everything to do with what comes immediately after. Because what we find in this passage is a new person, someone that we've not encountered before. It's this man, Joseph of Arimathea. And some of you have undoubtedly heard this name. Uh, If you're familiar with popular movies about Christian conspiracies throughout church history, you may have lots of opinions or at least heard a lot of opinions about him. But what does the Bible tell us about Joseph of Arimathea? Well, up until this point, nothing. He's new. He's come onto the scene. He is someone who, though he's been there, he's not been vocal. He has been a man in silence, though a man in presence. But we're told that as it is the day of preparation that this man, Joseph of Arimathea, a man from the town of Arimathea, at least in the first century called such. This is the same town you may be familiar with from the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, Ramah, it's the same town, just called differently in the time of Christ. And the scripture here in verse 43 tells us that he is a respected member of the council. And you may scratch your head and say, which council? The city council? The Roman council? No, the other gospels make it very clear. He is part of the Jewish council. He's part of what you've already been told uh, as being called the Sanhedrin. The group of men who made decisions according to the law for the sake of of the Jewish life in the city of Jerusalem, but also throughout uh, Judea. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council of the Sanhedrin, who we are told here was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. 
took courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Now there are a few things we need to understand here. Again, we have to look back to the context that Mark tips us off to. You see, the Scriptures say things about the Sabbath and specifically it also tells us things about how the body of a condemned man that's hung on a cross or on a tree is to be treated. You don't need to turn there, but just mark it down in your mind or in your notes. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verses 22 and 23 say this. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him on the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. The scriptures don't tell us this directly, but Mark strongly implies it. That Joseph of Arimathea, seeing Christ hanging upon the cross, interprets and feels of himself a spiritual duty to the keeping of the law. The cursed man has been slain on the tree, and the next day is the Sabbath, a holy day, the only holy day to the Lord. And in his mind and in his heart, with a desire to keep the law of God, at least firstly, he has a desire to take Christ down and to bury him rightly. Yeah, the gospel accounts tell us that this Joseph is a righteous and a good man. And so he is a man who cares about the law of God. And I think in a few minutes you'll see that he is a man that cares deeply for Jesus Christ as a Lord. But I do want you to notice who we are not told or is who we are not told uh, is involved in this action. None of the remaining 11 of the disciples of Jesus. It's just this random guy. Joseph of Arimathea. Someone listed in name for the first time in the Gospel accounts. Who's absent? Well, mighty Peter. The rock of the faith of the church. He's not there. We've already known that he's faltered and denied Christ three times. Andrew is also not there. From the other Gospel accounts, we know that John was there. That Jesus commissioned him for the care of his own mother as he hung on the cross. He was there, but he's not there anymore. James is not there. All the rest of them have fled. They've run for their lives. We know that because of the account of their hiding in the upper room. We know that because of the account of their abandoning the city of Jerusalem and going even back to their former lives of fishing and laboring at great distance from the authorities of the city who might wish to do the disciples of Christ harm. No, there's this man. There is Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, that the lens of the gospel focuses in on and gives quite a significant amount of attention to. Now this is different from last week where Christ was the highlight in all of His agony, in all of His suffering, in all 
of his pain and even in his death. No, in, in this passage, it's on a man who witnessed all of this. It's on a man who might even rightly be said to be complicit, a perpetrator of all of the suffering and the pain and the anguish of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's this man, one of the Sanhedrin, who's there with Christ, lifeless on the cross. When all of the crowds have gone, when the mockers' mouths have been shut, and when the lifeless body of the Lord has fallen cold. And so we should consider Him. We have to ask the question, why is this emphasized? What is being conveyed? Well, Mark's Gospel once again tells us he is a respected member of the Sanhedrin. Doesn't that place him in some very difficult company? I think it does. The enemies of Christ who brought him in chains after already trying him and trying to find within his testimony some blasphemy. They couldn't find it. They beat him. Who was that? It was the Sanhedrin. A man from their number is the one we're talking about. Joseph of Arimathea. We're also told by Mark that he was a man looking for the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means he was a man of faith. He believed in the promises of God. There is a distinguishing factor being noted whenever this is said. It's putting him at a distance from the other of the Sanhedrin. Yes, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, but he was a man who still believed in the word of God. He was a man of faith. What's he looking for? He's looking for the Messiah. How does the kingdom of God come but with God's king? It can't be established apart from a king. And Joseph is listed as a man who believed in it, who was looking for it and longing for it within Mark's account. John's gospel, I think, peels back even more layers. If you want to turn there, you may. Chapter 19, verse 38. John's gospel, chapter 19, verse 38, tells us more about Joseph of Arimathea. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. He's a disciple. He's not just a pragmatic Jew. He's not just a man after the law. Not just a man trying to protect the purity of the land from the cursed man hanging on the tree. Oh, he's one of the Sanhedrin who have been with Jesus, around Jesus, maybe even engaging in a debate with Jesus. We've seen that again and again and again in the Gospel account, haven't we? We have. He's probably laid eyes not only on Jesus in the flesh and His ministry, but on Jesus in the working of His miracles. Whether he was personally a witness, we don't know. But we do know that the Sanhedrin had a specific interaction with those who had received the miraculous work. Again, this is a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. It is beyond imagination that he has been distanced from the regular working of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the text of John tells us he was a secret disciple. He was a secret disciple. Disciple. I think we have to look again to John's Gospel. Look at verses, or chapter 12, verses 42 and 43. 
This ought to inform us, I think, tremendously on who this man is. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You see, that's heavy. It speaks specifically to the authorities, specifically to the believing Sanhedrin members. Most likely, specifically to Joseph of Arimathea, how many were believers among their number? It couldn't have been a terrible amount, a caucus for Christ. He's a secret believer, full of fear against the Pharisees that they might put him out of the synagogue. Luke's gospel also tells us a little more. Luke 23, verses 50 through 51, tells us, firstly, that Joseph of Arimathea was a good and a righteous man. And it also tells us that he didn't consent to the decision and action of the Sanhedrin. And so the Bible's own account tells us how to interpret this man. How do you interpret the Bible? By the Bible. By the Bible. And the Bible's own account is that this man, this man, a good and a righteous man, a member of the Sanhedrin, someone who looked onto the works of Christ, this man believed on him but in secret because he was afraid of other men. You see, that's a much more clear picture. That informs us why he goes and why he approaches to request the body of the Lord. His heart is given to him. He considers him somebody of incredible significance, someone that could be called a disciple of Christ. It's hugely important. A secret disciple. Now, in the world we live in today, the idea of secret things are really kind of vogue and seem kind of dangerous. And the secret church, the underground church, secret things, secret knowledge, all this kind of stuff. People sell loads of books, they get loads of popularity, loads of money for secret things that they know that nobody else knows, don't they? But I want to submit to you this morning that a secret disciple is a contradiction in terms. A secret disciple is a person with a divided heart. On one hand, they hold in faith to Jesus, and on the other hand, they tremble in fear at the world. And that's who Joseph of Arimathea has been. A secret disciple, somebody like what John 12, 42 and 43 describes, who believed on Christ but feared the Pharisees and did not confess it. A prominent member of the Sanhedrin, watching as they hated Christ, as they denied His teaching, yet with a pinned lip. Not a word ever recorded in Scripture of any positive defense from amongst those in the Sanhedrin for Jesus Christ. He sat and allowed 
hurling insult after hurling insult, punch after punch, murderous rage against Christ, even until he was nailed on the cursed tree. A secret disciple doesn't make sense. It doesn't accord with a heart of faith. It is the heart of a coward that recoils. It's incomplete in its profession. The Scripture saying that it means that he loved the glory that comes from men. Loved the glory of the synagogue. Loved the position. Even if down deep in his heart he professed a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Think on this for a moment. He watched his fellow council members lay hands upon the Lord with a bag over his head, slapping him and hitting him and saying, prophesy, tell us who hit you if you're a prophet. He did nothing. Did he join in? We don't know. We're told he didn't approve of what ultimately came to pass. But his involvement, we don't know. Let me ask you, are you a secret disciple? You know, this morning you might say to me, but pastor, look at us. We're in public. I'm in your church. Obviously, I'm not in secret. This is a public thing. Are you a secret disciple at work? With your friends, your family? In public? Are you a secret disciple before somebody who curses the name of Jesus? Are you willing to let others inflict wounds into his flesh, hurl insults and mocking hatred at him? Have you ever been guilty of it? With a cowardly heart that desires the approval of this world and of men and not to be put out of all of the inner working of society or the command chain that you want to climb or the advancement and promotion board that you hope to impress or the ground with which you want to make amongst social and family. Are you a secret disciple? Let me ask you, friend, how much hatred and persecution will you allow before you stand for Jesus, the one who didn't deny you? You see, in this passage, we're told of, yes, a secret disciple, but of a man who doesn't remain one. There's an inconsistency that's done away with. And in verses 43 through 46, we see the bold disciple. And though he had been silent, and though he had been secret, and though he had even stayed and watched Christ die and breathe his last upon the tree, he took courage, is what the Scriptures tell us. And he did what no other person did. No other person, not even the disciples that worshipped at the foot of Christ. Not even the disciples that preached his holy word and worked miracles on his behalf. He took courage and he went to Pilate. And he requested the body of his Lord. And you need to think on this, Christian. Don't pass over this. He came publicly to the man who wrote the death warrant for Jesus and he literally claimed Jesus' body and faith as his own. You need to understand this. That's what he did publicly. 
where all the other disciples, because of their worldly sins, ran in fear for their life and fear for society and everything else. They ran and they hid. This man went to the executioner. I just want you to understand that he would have obviously been a Jewish man of high rank and regard and wealth because of his dress, because of his, the manner in which he carried himself. And everybody would have seen him and it would have been a, a pointedly unique thing that the whole of Jerusalem would have taken note of as he walked to the Antonia Fortress to go and to meet with the man Pilate who hated Jews. It's like entering into the lion's den. It's like going into no man's land to pull the body of a fellow soldier slain back into a safe place where it could be honored and not desecrated by animals and mud and the weather. That's what he did. His body, his livelihood, all of who he is is put on the line for Christ in this act. The Sanhedrin looked on. Everybody. Not a private affair. He owned Christ publicly. Do you see Pilate's response? Well, he's skeptical, isn't he? At least to some measure. He's, he's shocked because like we spoke of last week, this work of crucifixion, this method of execution, it's, it's terrible because it is so slow. You know, we talked about what happens as the heart and the sac around the heart is filled with fluid that presses upon the heart's tissues disrupting the heart's own rhythm, which generally would cause something like a cardiac arrest, or the lungs also would fill up with fluid as he hangs. And you remember, the only way to get relief is to pull up against the wounds. Horrific death. Took a long time. It's why we have the account of the soldiers not wanting the men who were on either side of Christ to continue in their suffering. They go and they break the legs where they can't push up. And keep themselves breathing for any longer. It's a tactic to speed things along. Pilate, understandably, he's shocked. How's he dead already? How is this possible? He turns to a centurion, the man who's in charge of the whole execution, and he says simply this, Can you tell me for sure that he's dead? See, the last thing Pilate wants to do is to have a botched execution, something halfway done, and then you have Jesus... Pierced hands, pierced feet, walking through the streets. A failed execution from a weak government just to stir up even more issues in the city of Jerusalem that Pilate was very, very keen to avoid. Is he dead? He asked the centurion. Is he dead? Now this is the same centurion that we've already read of just last week. And whenever he saw the manner in which Jesus breathed his last, he said of himself, truly this man was the Son of God. Because what did Jesus do? In a moment, he gave up his spirit to the Lord. Six hours on the cross, a dead Christ. Unique, pointedly unique. The testimony of which rang out upon Golgotha. And here is once again corroborated before the authority of the city of Jerusalem. It's as if he looked at Pilate and just simply said, yes, I watched it all. He breathed his last and I even pierced my, his side with my spear. 
And there was nothing that came out, not a twitch, nothing but water. I assure you, he's dead. I'm as shocked as you are myself. It's another testimony. This is a dead Christ hanging upon the cross, not a half-dead man. There's a corpse there. That's why the scriptures speak of his corpse, his body. He's lifeless. Pilate's response is, well, if he's dead, sure, do what you will with him. What does Joseph do? Well, he goes and hurriedly purchases fine linen. This isn't cheap stuff. He doesn't go and get an old bed sheet. Doesn't find a used tarp that was put into purpose upon a farm. No, no. This is linen made, handmade on looms in the ancient world. An expensive thing, an expensive cloth. And he buys this. He goes and takes the body of Christ down off the cross himself pulling the nails from his hands and feet and bearing the weight of his limp and lifeless body upon his own, feeling its cold, dead character and all of it, all the way to the ground to lay him within the cradle of his burial cloths. You should interpret this rightly. This is not just a task that was done recklessly. This was a task done worshipfully. Whenever he does this, it is at great expense and it is lovingly. The once humiliated Christ is now in the heart of a formerly secret disciple, exalted and honored and loved and cared for. Christ kept the law and life and even his body didn't break it in death. Joseph bore him up and took him to his own rock-cut tomb, laid him within it lovingly, and rolled a stone in the way so that no one could come and take him from where he lay. He's not a secret disciple anymore. No, he's a bold, bold disciple of Jesus Christ. Probably covered literally in his blood exhausted from what it took for him to take him down from the cursed tree. Why the change? This isn't an afraid man anymore. Why the change? Why now? Well, it's because he beheld Jesus who died for him. John fifteen thirteen. This is what he saw. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. What Joseph saw as he stood around Christ, the righteous Lamb of God, suffering unto death, he saw this. Jesus died for me. Galatians 2.20 This is what fell upon his heart. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ who lives in me. 
In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Joseph's testimony, he died in my place. That's what has happened now. 1 Peter 2, 24-25 This was his cry to the watching world. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Joseph had come to behold in Jesus Christ his substitutionary atonement, his Messiah, his Lord, his Master, who didn't keep of himself even unto death for the sake of his salvation. And Joseph simply in himself had it in this way. If he would die for me, I will own him before a watching world. The death of Christ is the heartbeat of the courage of the disciples of Christ. If he can die for me, I can stand for him. So friends, that brings us to the most important question. As we come to the end of the passage, as we stand, as it were, at the graveside of the Lord with the women looking on, testifying to the truth of all the events and knowing where he was put, the most important question, what do we do with Jesus? Question of Pilate. What should I do with the king of the Jews? All of you, all of us in this room, those who have been with us for time, we've been with Jesus. We've walked with him for two years in the Gospel of Counts. We've all heard his teaching. We've all studied his miracles. We've experienced his gentleness, his kindness, and his love as we've studied all of this. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with the Christ who died in your place? With the Christ who for two weeks we looked on in the agony and the horror of His suffering. What will you do with it? Will it be the next hobby? Just a thing to put in your back pocket? Just another thing about you? Yes, such and such a Christian private identity? Or will you publicly own and claim profess Him as Lord and Savior and adore Him and exalt Him as He and He alone deserves? What will you do with Christ? Put your faith on Him this morning. What are you waiting for? This charade of a private Christian, it's nothing but a profession that sees Christ killed in your hearts and in your life. Profess Him this morning. 
Receive the one as Lord and Savior who was slain in your place. Deal with Christ. Deal with Christ. Know him as Lord and Savior. He is freely offered to you by faith. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you even for difficult passages like this. Lord, as we consider the Savior who died for us, as we consider our own lives, oh Lord, we pray for redemption. We pray for your mercy. Oh Lord, that you would give us new hearts and new eyes to see Jesus in his suffering and in his death and in coming weeks even in his resurrection. Help us to love him and to profess him as Lord. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.